No, Rory thinks he's six foot seven. Yeah, I'm I'm six ten. Oh, Randy Johnson over here. Mm-hmm. Big unit. I'm more like the medium unit. <laughs> Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host Katie. And today we are talking about the murder of Lacey Peterson, part two. Part two. Where did we leave off last week, Katie? Last week we left off on December thirty first, two thousand two, which was a week since Lacey had disappeared. Now that's New Year's Eve, right? New Year's Eve, yep. All right. And just give a brief recap of uh, what happened last week. On December 24th, Christmas Eve, Scott Peterson took his boat out to the Berkeley Marina. When he arrived home at around 5.30, Lacey was nowhere to be found. Their dog, Mackenzie, was running around with its leash on, and a search started, and Scott started being very suspicious. All right, so that's where we were. This is in California, guys, and we're going to go ahead and continue with part two. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Katie? Okay, so before we jump back into the actual case, we're going to cover um, the background of both Lacey and Scott and their marriage. So Scott Peterson was born to Lee and Jackie Peterson on October 24th, 1972. From the moment he was born, Jackie referred to Scott as her golden child. He is happy and smiling 24-7 and rarely ever cries as an infant. She even recalls when he was a baby, she and Lee went to dinner, and he was so quiet they forgot he was even there and walked out of the restaurant without him. That's just good parenting. It's understandable. That was the moment he could have become a line cook. And did you know that uh, my nickname was Happy Boy when I was a kid? Was it? Yeah. Is that weird? It wasn't mine. I was a terrible child. And also, this dude was born like... 15 years and a day before me. Is there something weird about how many serial killers like share my birthday or are close to my birthday? Scorpios. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> After high school, Scott briefly moved to Phoenix, Arizona and attended a semester at Arizona State University to golf on the college's team. As for his short stay, he always says that he disliked the golf coach. Others say he really sucked at golf and realized he was never going to be a successful player. And others say that he got a girl pregnant and made her have an abortion and then quietly left. Sounds to me like he was well on his way to becoming president of the United States. He moved back to San Luis Obispo, a small town in Southern California. He attended a community college for 18 months before enrolling at California Polytechnic State University for his bachelor's in agriculture. It was at Cal Poly that Scott and Lacey met in 1995. What can you do with an agricultural degree? Be a farmer. Hmm. Sell fertilizer. I was going to say, a shit farmer. I'm sure there's plenty of things you can do, but I'm not really sure. Okay. Was there a lot of like breaking edge technology in the shit farming industry back then? Maybe not back then, but I know my uh, buddy sells like lawn stuff. And you talk some product that he made after getting like his biochemical engineering degree, and he goes around and sells that. Lacey Rocha was born May fourth, nineteen seventy five, to Sharon and Dennis Rocha. That is Lacey Peterson later on. Yes. When Lacey was young, her parents divorced, and by the time she turned two, Sharon had remarried to Ron Gransky, who would raise Lacey as his own. Lacey was a bubbly, talkative child, trait she carried with her her entire life. After graduating high school, she moved to San Luis Obispo to attend Cal Poly for a degree in ornamental horticulture. What? Sorry, that's just a weird name for a degree. It means she made flower designs. She She was a florist. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. She loved any and all flowers and hoped to make a career of it. She made the first move, giving him her phone number and waiting for his call. Before he'd even contacted her, Lacey told her mother Sharon that she'd met the man she was going to marry. When they began their relationship, Scott's favorite place to take Lacey was the cafe his ex-girlfriend worked at. 
Many say that Scott simply did this to make her jealous in hopes of winning her back. Others say it was simply the scones. Eventually, Lacey caught on and was able to win Scott over and make him forget about the other woman. She should have caught on and made herself forget about old Scotty. I agree. In December 1995, the two moved in together and Lacey gifted Scott their golden retriever Mackenzie for Christmas. Best gift ever. He would take it on his dates with other women. Between 1996 and their wedding on August 9, 1997, Scott is said to have two relationships with women, but neither were confirmed. At this time, he was still a senior and Lacey had graduated, so they lived in separate cities while he finished school and she worked. We do know that shortly after marrying, Scott began a whirlwind relationship with a woman named Janet Hughes. He wooed her with extravagant gifts and dates in the five months they dated. It all ended when she showed up at Scott's home for a late-night romantic surprise. Where was he getting all these extravagant gifts and all this as a fertilizer salesman? He wasn't working for Trade Corps at this point. He was, I think, strictly in school, so I'm going to say probably um, Jackie. One of his roommates let her in, and she entered Scott's bedroom to find him in bed with another woman. She was shocked, even more so, when Scott just lay there as she yelled at them both. Eventually, one of his roommates came in and got her and drove her home, explaining that he wasn't cheating on her, he was cheating on his wife with her. Did that make her feel better about the situation? I highly doubt it. I don't really think there's a win-win in that in any way. Like, you can't be like, well, good news is he was cheating on his wife with you. Apparently, Lacey forgave Scott, and after his graduation, they purchased a sports bar called The Shack. Business was slow at first, but eventually picked up, and the bar became a local go-to. In 2000, they sold the bar and moved to Modesto, California to be closer to Lacey's family and start one of their own. According to Ann Bird, Scott's half-sister, Jackie Peterson, was extremely unhappy with the move, constantly saying Modesto was on the wrong side of the tracks. I don't know all that much about Modesto, but pretty sure it's not like 8 Mile. Well, everything's kind of starting to look like 8 Mile now. It was a nice, I mean, it's a nice little town. It's not how the news constantly described it, but it's not like a horrible <laughs> murder capital of the world or anything. Yeah, I think that's Detroit. There's like a murder a day in Detroit. Either way, they purchased a home on Covina Avenue and were what seemed to be the perfect couple. Friends later said that Lacey was somewhat bossy, constantly telling Scott to do this or that, but he never argued and seemed to happily do what she asked. It's also said that Lacey talked constantly, so much that Scott had to escape to the bathroom for a moment of peace. If this truly bothered him, it wasn't noticeable to friends or family. I think it might have bothered him. Now that we see the whole picture, yeah, I think so. They began trying for a baby in 2000, but surgery to remove an abdominal tumor also took one of Lacey's fallopian tubes when she was a child and made conceiving difficult. In 2002, she learned that she was finally pregnant, and they began preparations. The nursery was nautical-themed and perfectly laid out for baby Connor's arrival. Lacey had what seemed like the rest of their lives planned out after the birth. That's so fucked up that it was nautical-themed. Yeah. Eventually, they would move to a nice farm with a large house and spend the rest of their days together there. She had big dreams, but apparently they had little money to follow them with. When she disappeared, Scott was in a fairly significant amount of debt, especially with Lacey out of work. Being so close to her due date, she'd quit her job to take care of herself and eventually Connor. She became increasingly sore and tired as her February 10th due date approached, and by December, she was told she needed to take it extremely easy and not exercise or exert herself. But as we established before, Lacey didn't really like being told what to do or held back in a sense like that, right? Yeah, but if it was for her child's benefit, I think she would have followed any any orders. Okay. 
While Lacey had big plans for their future together, Scott was preoccupied planning his future with another woman. Amber Fry called the Modesto PD's tip line on December 30th and reported that she had been in a serious relationship with Scott Peterson. Amber was a single mother to an almost two-year-old daughter living in Fresno. Her best friend, Sean Sibley, had met Scott at a business conference in October 2002. Sean and Scott spent the night drinking and getting to know each other, and Scott flirted heavily with her despite knowing she was married. Sean's a girl? Yes. So last week we had a boy dog with a girl dog's name, and this week we have a girl human with a boy human's name. I think you need to kind of just uh, get out of the thought space that names give you masculinity or femininity. You're probably right, but it's still throwing me off. Scott explained that he was looking for his soulmate, a woman to spend the rest of his life with. Sean immediately thought of Amber, who was looking for the same thing. Scott should have immediately thought of his pregnant wife. Indeed. <laughs> they eventually got in contact and set a date for November 20th. They met at a bar, and Scott took Amber back to his hotel room, saying he'd been traveling all day and needed to shower and change clothes. He'd surprised her with champagne and strawberries, and after he'd gotten ready, they went to a restaurant and shared a private room. He told her about his travels all over the world and how he planned to go to Maine with his family for Christmas, then travel Europe until mid-January. After their meal, they went to a karaoke bar and stayed until close, then spent the night together in Scott Hotel Room. What do you think Scott's go-to karaoke song is? Don't Stop Believing. What's the fly like a bird one? I'm like a bird, yeah. I want to fly away. Oh, Nelly Furtado. Yeah. I think that's probably it. Yeah. Uh, well, what, about Nell, what about like Lenny Kravitz then? I've got to get away. That's a good one too. All right. And it's really cliche. And Scott seems like a pretty cliche guy. He probably got on his boat with Lenny Kravitz just pumping. I want to get away. I'm thinking he was more of like a, like a classic rock guy, like an 80s style. So it's probably something like... Here, here I go again on my own by like Great White. <laughs> that could be. That could be. It could have been American Woman by Lenny Kravitz. That's true. All right. Did he really have all of those plans uh, for January with like to travel Europe and whatnot, or was he just saying all these things to make himself look like a big baller? No, I'm pretty sure he was saying them because he had to be with Lacey for Christmas so and he... January, and so he needed an excuse. Ah, so this was before he came up with his plan. Mm -hmm. Scott tells Amber he'll be away in Alaska for the rest of November, when in reality he took a trip to Disneyland with his family, arranged by Ann Bird, and spent Thanksgiving with Lee and Jackie Peterson. So, I mean, it's probably safe to say that the number of people who vacation to Alaska in November is about the same amount of people you see walking down the streets of Tucson in like a 114 degree afternoon. I don't know. I could see going to Alaska when it stays light outside for 23 hours of the day. Well, that's the only draw. <laughs> Polar bears are cool. Northern lights? Do they have the northern lights in Alaska? I think so. Yeah. Totally, totally. The two spoke the 21st and 22nd, but she did not hear from him again until December 1st. Scott arrives at Amber's home later that day with groceries to make them dinner. They pick Amber's daughter up from school, have a picnic Scott packed, and watch the stars. Scott brought the child a book as a gift, and some later wondered if it was a book meant for Connor. On December 3rd, Amber has Scott pick up her daughter from school and meet her at her home. She explains in her book Witness that Scott and her daughter got along immediately, and she felt comfortable enough with Scott to allow him to pick her up. When she arrives home, Scott has wine waiting, and they head out to pick out a Christmas tree. While talking later that evening, Scott says he's never been married and does not plan on having children. It's pretty scary that she trusted him enough to pick up her daughter from school and all this and whatnot, 
And yet he lied to her on literally every chance he could. Yeah, but when you sorry, when you make yourself out to be a good person superhero, you kind of have to keep with that image, you know. And she trusted him. Like it's not bad to trust people. It's just sometimes you trust the wrong person. If it looks like fat Ben Affleck, maybe you shouldn't trust him. That's true. He was the bomb in Phantoms, yo. He was the bomb in Phantoms. We didn't do. The two do not see each other again until the ninth, but Scott speaks to Sean Sibley the sixth when she discovers that he's married and calls him in a rage. How did she find out he was married? From a co-worker of Scott's. Mm-hmm. They were talking about him, and the co-worker was like, no, Scott's married. Scott's shitting where he eats. He begs her to not tell Amber, as he wants to do it himself. She agrees and keeps it a secret when she sees Amber the next day. On the ninth, Scott calls Amber and says he happens says he happens to be down the street and wants to stop by. She agrees and notices as soon as he walks in that something is off. Tells her that he needs to come clean about a mistake he had made and begins to sob uncontrollably. When he's finally able to speak again, he tells Amber that he had been married but had lost his wife and this would be his first Christmas without her. Immediately trying to manipulate her into like feeling bad for him and forgiving him despite it being his like lie and his fuck up. Amber doesn't ask what happened, not wanting to prize, obviously the wound was still fresh, and he's very upset. Once he's told her, he snaps out of it and returns to his normal self. Did he say, like, in scene, by, like, accident when he was done? He's like, I mean, fuck, yeah, that was rough. Scott and Amber attend a party for a friend December 11th, and a formal Christmas party the 14th. Scott had told Lacey that he had a business conference the 14th and would be out of town. Scott arrived at Amber's house with three dozen roses, and the two get ready for the party, discussing what Amber should introduce him as to her friends. They agree on boyfriend. They should have gone with jackass. Scott also explains that he's considering a vasectomy, as he doesn't want children of his own. He'd rather treat Amber's daughter as his one and only child. That's not sweet or endearing. That's creepy. How did she take him saying that? She wasn't very comfortable with it. I think she was... Mostly concerned about the fact that he was, like, 30 and wanted a vasectomy and was, like, dead set in having only her kid. I don't know. At at this point in time, so is that what she says in the book or is it more like one of those things where at this time she actually kind of does find it endearing because she's looking for a soulmate? No, she was pretty concerned about it. Okay. Yeah, it's creepy. Ask Creepy Rory. He'll tell you. <coughs> No, he's into it. He said he would say it in RP. <laughs> That's how you know that it's creepy. He also tells her that he's planning on speaking to his bosses about traveling less so he's able to spend more time with Amber. They spend the night together, and Scott leaves Fresno for home around noon. When he arrives at his, when he arrives at his and Lacey's house, Sharon and Ron are there for dinner. They eat and watch TV together, and Lacey asks Sharon if she wants to feel Connor kick. She tries, but he doesn't move for the rest of the time she's there. This is the last time Sharon and Ron see Lacey alive. Scott and Amber speak on the phone multiple times most days between the 16th. (coughs) It's hard to edit out the, the starts of those. Scott and Amber speak on the phone multiple times most days between the 16th, including on the evening of the 24th, the night the entire family was out looking for Lacey. Scott continues to tell her he's in Maine, and then after the disappearance says he's going on a vacation to Hawaii. 
Amber starts to become suspicious of Scott, so he er Amber starts to become suspicious of Scott, so her and a friend search for his name on the internet on the 28th, but can't find anything as it's a relatively common name. On the 29th, she asks a friend, a Fresno police officer, to run Scott's name and see if he can have better luck. He calls Amber the 30th and tells her that Scott is married and he's a prime suspect in his wife's disappearance. She calls the Modesto PD and speaks to Detective Brocchini, who asks her if she'd be willing to help them in the investigation. She agrees, and Brocchini and investigator John Bueller head to her Fresno home to meet her and Sean Sibley. Despite being roped into this, girl Sean has to feel like she really dodged a bullet being mar- like married when Scott was hitting on her. Well, just because someone hits on you doesn't mean you're going to date them and be with them. Maybe. Scott seems like once he's like got his hooks into you, he just does what he's got to do. Yeah, I don't see him taking rejection well, but I think he moves on fairly quickly. Amber explains the entire relationship and gives the detectives proof. They tell her that they've been praying someone like her would be found to help move the investigation along. She agrees to record her and Scott's phone calls, and they pick up a device at Radio Shack. Almost as soon as it's purchased, he calls her and tells her he's in Europe for the holiday. He pretends the connection is bad and that the call is lost. The next night, he calls her from Lacey's candlelight vigil, claiming he's in Paris watching fireworks by the Eiffel Tower, and that's why it's so loud. He's just lucky that this whole thing was like happened before camera phones and sending pictures was a really big thing because like in today's world I think his lies would get him caught up really quick unless he like carried a whole array of props and cardboard cutouts and you just photoshop it yeah if you're good at photoshop gotta get that s20 I imagine he is or he can at least paste himself in front of the Eiffel Tower what if she's He probably already at... had that on hand. If he had Photoshop, he would already have the picture for any of his number of girlfriends. Yeah. Stock photo on Google Images. This was back before everyone knew how to do that. Mm-hmm. He'd get caught these days is all I'm saying. They speak a few more times about their relationship and New Year's resolutions before he tells her that he will call her at midnight California time. When he does, he tells her he's getting ready to go to Brussels and they speak more on their relationship. Tells her how amazing she is and ends the phone call with, quote, a relationship will grow and know how beautiful you are. Okay, sweetie? Fuck this guy. Right? What a turd. He's so fucking, like, cheesy. No, how frustrated must she have been when she's like, she knows that he's full of shit and he's just sitting there on the phone like. She's probably sitting there thinking to herself, how did I fall for this shit? She was, I mean, incredibly helpful. She's probably the one thing that secured his um, sentence. Send him to prison. He's just a douchebag. Mm-hmm. Scott is a douchebag. In the beginning of January, there's a rumor that briefly goes around that Lacey had an affair as well. Detectives looked into it, but were never able to find any proof. Everyone that knew Lacey said there was no chance she'd cheated on Scott, especially while pregnant. I mean, before all this, they might have said the same thing about old Scotty, too, though, because everybody thought they had a great marriage, right? And that- he had a lot of people fooled. That may be true, but he also has a history of cheating on her that people are probably aware of if they're close with her, right? I think so, yeah. Okay. She, If she knew about Amber, she didn't say anything to anyone, which would have been very odd. Yeah. Scott continues to speak with police and asks Detective Grogan if he believed that Lacey had been kidnapped. When he replied he wasn't really sure what to think, Scott flatly asked... Do you think when she has the baby, I'll get half my family back? What the fuck does he mean by that? 
I assume he's trying to say that she'd been kidnapped for the baby, and once the baby is born, they're going to just, like, drop her off on the doorstep. Is that a thing that they kidnap women for babies? Why are you asking me? I'm not an expert on kidnapping women for babies. (laughs) Hey, Rory, what's that van for? Later that same day, Scott went to the station to retrieve the keys to Lacey's car after it had been searched. Grogan took the opportunity to take him into an interview room and showed him a photo of him and Amber that she'd provided. Grogan acted like he didn't know who it was and said an anonymous person had sent it to them. Scott looked at it for a moment, then said, what, is that supposed to be me? He took no responsibility and said that the woman maybe looked like someone that he went to college with, but the man was definitely not him. And he was in this photograph that they showed him? It was literally just him and Amber, yeah. And he denied it? Yeah, he said, that doesn't look like me. This is where he fucked up, though. If at this point he would have told the truth and been even a little bit forthcoming, like, yeah, I was cheating on my wife. It's not something I'm proud of, blah, 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 whatever, you know, talked his way into it. They probably would have made him less of a suspect if he had admitted it. Most likely, yeah. Him denying it, he had something to hide. The husband did it. He was going down either way. Fuck this guy. During the time of this interview, Janet, the woman that had walked in on Scott and Lacey in 1998, called the tip line and reported her relationship with him as well. All right, so we determined that Scott is obviously a compulsive liar and a cheater and a manipulator. And how would we classify his, like, overall mental state? Like, does he have issues that he's dealing with, or is he just a narcissistic asshole? He's just a narcissist. He thinks he can get away with literally anything, and that his needs trump everyone else's. With Scott's overall demeanor and now knowing he had another woman in his life, detectives decided to begin official 24-hour surveillance on him on the 4th. They also announced they would be searching the Berkeley Marina the next day. As detectives followed Scott the 5th, he led them right to the marina at around 90 miles an hour. From the moment the surveillance started, he had began what police refer to as counter-surveillance, which is basically driving extremely erratically in hopes of losing whoever is following you. I wouldn't say that's counter-surveillance, I'd just say like... That's what they call it. Yeah, well, they have a dumb name for it. <laughs> well, I guess that's the police term for it, I don't know. When he arrives at the marina, he sits in the parking lot for a few minutes before driving straight home. The next day, he goes to the Red Lion Volunteer Center, his lawyer's office, and then to an enterprise where he leaves Lacey's Land Rover and rents a Honda. He drives it to the marina again and looks out over the water for around 10 minutes before leaving. According to Catherine Cryer's book, someone approaches the car and they speak for a minute or two before Scott leaves. His counter-surveillance worked this time and officers lost him. He was found at the Red Lion, then drove to the enterprise and picked up Lacey's Land Rover. So it kind of seems like he's trying to avoid being followed, but it also seems like he's not being that careful. It's like you go to all this trouble to go rent a car, right? But then they they were following him the whole time. They knew he rented the car. So it seems like he's uh like, do we know why he was doing all of this and stopping in front of the marina? And was he just trying to lead him on a goose chase? I think he thought it was the media and not detectives. So I think he was just trying to escape having his picture taken and wasn't really that worried that it was going to lead to anything because he didn't really think that he was that big of a suspect. Made him look pretty guilty, though. For sure. Amber calls Scott that afternoon, telling him she'd received a cryptic phone call from one of her friends saying that she needed to call her immediately as something was very wrong. Scott pretends he has a bad connection and calls her back later in the day. He's obviously upset and tells her he has to tell her the worst thing in the world, and he's sure that's why Amber's friend had called her. 
He begins by telling her that he hasn't been traveling in Europe the last few weeks. He lied to her about that. So I also lied to you about, we've had really good connections. Like, they haven't been dropping my calls. I just feel like a real dick. He says that for the last two weeks, his wife has been missing and he's been in Modesto searching for her. Detectives were there with her, coaching her on what to say, but she couldn't bring herself to ask every question they wanted her to. Scott then tells her, quote, If you even watch the news at all, well, you haven't, um... The media has been telling everyone that I had something to do with her disappearance. So the past two weeks I've been hunted by the media, and I just, I don't want you to be involved. Protect yourself. I know that I've, you know, I've destroyed, and I got, I hope, I hope so much that this doesn't hurt you. Turning up the emotion to evoke some pity seems to be his style. Amber started to grow upset and began asking Scott for an explanation as to why he told her on the 9th he'd lost his wife and now his wife was missing. Scott said that he couldn't tell her because he had to protect everyone involved. Once they found Lacey, he would be able to tell her everything. He claimed there were entirely too many repercussions if he told her everything. Detectives were after one thing, recorded proof that Scott had told Amber he'd lost his wife, and they got it. So he had no idea that she was working with the cops? No. So Scotty didn't know? No, he had no idea that there was any sort of wiretaps on his phones at all. Okay, okay. They spoke again the next day, January 7th. After telling her he loved her and talking about their possible future, Amber asked Scott if he had taken a polygraph, and he lied and told her yes. She said that if they wanted to start over with a clean slate, he would have to go to the media and tell them the results of the polygraph. Scott agrees and is given a noon deadline. Obviously, he doesn't follow through, as he had never actually taken the polygraph. When she called him, asking what happened, he explained it away, then boldly lied about having told Lacey about his and Amber's relationship before she disappeared. Amber threatened to go to police, and the surveillance team following his car tracked him to the police station, where he drove around the parking lot briefly before leaving. More than likely, he was looking for Amber's car to see if she'd already gone to the police. Later that day, Scott called Dish Network and asked them to add the Playboy channel to his subscription. Well, what else are you going to do if you figure you're not going to see your mistress anymore? On the 9th, a sonar search of the Berkeley Marina revealed a human-like shape under the water. Weather conditions didn't allow divers to go into the water, so the search was planned for January 11th. Scott loaded up multiple suitcases and left his home, once again being tracked to the Berkeley Marina, where he drove around the parking lot, then left. So is he surveilling the parking lots when he employs this drive-around-and-dip technique? I'm thinking he's probably looking for people searching in the marina. Oh, okay. He's looking to see if anybody has gotten the wind of what may have happened. Detectives had gotten a warrant that allowed them to wiretap Amber and 65 other individuals' phone calls with Scott, so they used his phone calls to track him and avoid him causing any accidents with his counter-surveillance. He's just a real Jim Rockford with his counter-surveillance, I'll tell you. On the morning of the 11th, search crews head out to the marina to find the object located by sonar. The object is located fairly quickly and turns out to just be a boat anchor. Well, what genius made a body-shaped boat anchor? I think on sonar it probably looked... I mean, it was at the bottom of the marina, so... Despite it not being Lacey's body, detectives still retrieved a huge piece of evidence from the search. While listening to a voicemail from someone telling Scott it was not the body of Lacey in the marina, wiretaps picked up a whistle from Scott. It's not a sigh of relief that it's not her body, but rather a sigh of relief that he was very close to being caught and wasn't. So was it like a... Probably. Like, whoo, just dodge that bullet. Basically. On the 12th, Scott goes with his half-sister Ann Bird to her son's christening. The Petersons sit down with the rector and talk about Lacey's disappearance. Ann notices that the rector seems extremely uncomfortable around Scott and refuses to look him in the eye or say much to him, 
like he knew something about him. After arriving home from the service, Scott calls Dish again and exchanges the Playboy channel for multiple hardcore porn channels. Free internet flooded with free porn. <laughs> it makes sense because I've definitely heard uh, Playboy referred to as gateway porn. Why was that on his mind after his nephew's christening? There's a lot of people that assume that this is also evidence because Lacey was like super against porn. Him ordering the porn channels is basically him knowing that she's never going to come back and find out about it. Makes sense. On the 15th, detectives learned that the tabloid The National Enquirer had gotten the story of Amber and Scott's affair and had planned to run it the 16th. Not wanting the families to learn of Scott's mistress through a horrible newspaper, they decided to sit down and break the news to them. They began with the Roaches, who obviously were distraught over the information. They'd been trying since the start to keep their faith in Scott, but it now seemed that he had been involved. Sharon Rocha began to sob and asked why did he have to kill her. When they told the Petersons, they saw no problem with the affair. Lee said that men cheat, so what? It doesn't mean that he killed Lacey. Reporters quickly got a hold of Amber's name and began calling nonstop trying to get her statement. She was forced to set up a last-minute press conference in hopes that going in front of cameras would give her some peace from the media firestorm. This is probably the most famous image of Amber, standing at the podium, hair messy and pulled back, looking terrified as she tells the world she had a romantic relationship with Scott not knowing he was married. All she really did was uh, get tricked by Scott. She really didn't have anything to do with anything except she just kind of got played. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she's the victim. That's 100%. It. So it happens in most of these cases that these women aren't actually, you know, bad people. They're just victims of a manipulator. The next day, the Red Lion Volunteer Center's doors stayed closed. The Roaches had decided with this new information, Scott was the one who knew where Lacey was, and no amount of searching was going to bring her home. It was now his responsibility to come clean, as he'd obviously been lying the entire time. They contacted detectives asking what to do with the volunteer fund, as they were concerned Scott might get the money. He'd already tried accessing it to pay personal bills. Sharon and Ron called Scott, asking him about his fare. He denied it, saying that the police were out to get him and making it all up. The call ended, but Sharon had more to say, so she called Scott back later that day and began to yell at him, asking why he had to kill her and saying he needed to tell them where her body was so they could bring her home. Of course, he continued to say he didn't know and wanted her home just as much as the Roaches did. On the 18th, he headed for Los Angeles, claiming he was going to start his own volunteer center to search Southern California, still trying to make it seem like he believed she was alive. Lacey's family was pretty much convinced that she was already dead, right? Yeah, pretty much everyone was, because at this point, she had been missing for around three weeks, and if you've been missing for three weeks, there's a strong possibility you're not coming home. Most people have to be found within 72 hours. Yeah, because that's just super, super intense to just call them up and just, I mean, obviously emotions run high, but that's like, you don't come back from that, so if it turns out like that he was innocent too too far down the, that road now, you've called him out. So is that where we're going to end it this week, Katie? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll pick back up next week. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We do appreciate it. And uh, so that's going to be part three next week for Scott Peterson. I think we're going to wrap it up. Yep. All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. It's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscrime. And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. And uh, check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list to give us an idea, maybe for an episode that you guys want to hear, or just to uh, get a free sticker sent to you from us just by entering Bingo Bango as the promo code at checkout. So have a good week, guys. We uh, hope you enjoyed this and join us next week for part three.
right. Yes. See you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. My grandpa lived on Covina Avenue, but it was actually in Mesa, just down the street what was from his? Garcia's. <laughs> there it is. I was going to say, what was his favorite restaurant? Garcia's, baby. My parent, my mom, doesn't want to go there for his birthday this year. What a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>